All right, welcome back to another episode of The Flex Coach. Today's guest is Adam Arafat. He is the market development representative at DocuSign and the author of the book, Be Someone. In this episode, Adam shares the lessons that he's learned by tracking and interviewing successful people and their journeys. I would highly encourage you to check out his book, Be Someone, which will be linked in the description below. Again, it's subject to release in December. And if you're from Houston, I highly encourage you to check it out and support him. And uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. So usually it would be you kind of introducing yourself. So if you don't mind just doing a quick intro for the people that may not know who you are and what you do. All right, absolutely. Well, howdy, everyone. My name is Adam Arafat. I am a alumni of the University of Houston. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, lived in the Middle East for a few years, moved back to Houston, uh, finished up school there. And now I live in Seattle, Washington as a sales rep at doc, a company called DocuSign. That's where I am now. And for the past year, I've been writing a book called Be Someone, figuring out what it means to be someone based off the iconic Houston graffiti that you might have seen if you are a local Houston citizen. Right. That's amazing, man. Um, Let's get into it then immediately, because I want to know what the inspiration behind writing that book is. You know, what are you inspired by? Why are you driven to uh, essentially make that piece of work? You know... Uh, and we were talking about this when we first got on the phone. The inspiration really, I can say so many different things. Like I was inspired by my dad, who's an uh, immigrant entrepreneur who moved here in the 80s. I could say that I was inspired by uh, Howard Schultz and how he built Starbucks. I can say how I was, I was inspired by all these different things. But if I was to categorize it into one like defining moment, an epiphany, like, uh, like when the apple fell on Isaac Newton's head when he discovered gravity, I would say it was back in December, 2019. I just got promoted at my job and I wasn't super excited about the promotion, right? Like it was, I was moving from an entry level sales job to like the second tier of an entry level sales job. And I was, it was like, you like eating pizza for like a year, cheese pizza for a year. And now you have the option to add toppings, but I'm already sick of pizza. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I want a steak or sushi or something, something more interesting. And so when I was browsing my, my accounts on LinkedIn, and I discovered this uh, this program out of Georgetown University called the Creators Institute. And it's a book writing community. And the professor behind it, Eric Kester, the main philosophy behind it is books shouldn't be seen as something to complement something you've already accomplished, but as a way to discover new opportunities. And just reading the syllabus and how seeing how it's so possible for anyone to write a book because uh, up until like December 2019 I thought writing a book was like an enormous challenge like something almost impossible mm-hmm. for like the average layman to do and for the most part I considered myself a pretty average citizen and so after going through and seeing that it has a 90% people that go through this program have a 90% chance of writing a book I'm like right, well you know what I've been looking for something to feed my entrepreneurial spirit, something that I have this need to be someone, as I like to call it, or as psychologists uh, define it as. Uh, and I was looking for an outlet for it, and I, like found the, and I finally found this. I was like, I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to use it to put my name out in the industry I want to be in, which was uh, Middle Eastern baked goods. So my family has a legacy known as uh, Halouyat mm-hmm. Arafat. 
translates to air fat sweets, Mahat Palestinian. And we have Middle Eastern bakeries all over the uh, Middle East. And we sold things like baklava, kanafa, and all these delicious treats. And that's initially why I wanted to, what I was gonna make the book about. When I started the, the program, I was like, I didn't even know what I was gonna write about. I just know I really wanted to write a book. That's interesting. And I, yeah. And when I met with Eric, he's like, yeah, you can uh, write, you can interview people in this industry. You can be known as the, the sweets guy. And I was like, all right. And some of the original stories and interviews from my original concepts are in that book, in that original idea of uh, writing stories about people that moved from like a third world nation like Syria to a Western nation like, uh, like the United States, like someone who moved from Syria to Brooklyn and they defined themselves through cooking. Mm-hmm. That was the original story or that's what the original book was gonna be about. And I was writing about it, writing about it, writing about it for about a month. And then I just had this uh, epiphany or not even epiphany, but uh, just this meet, this reminder of like who I was. Uh, every day, on my commute to the University of Houston, I would pass under the be someone sign. Be someone, be someone, be someone. I'm like, what does it mean to be someone? Why do I know that I want to be someone? Why does that inspire me so much? Why is that, why do I like that art so much? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, every day I, like, I would get to class and I'll just sit at my, my desk and like thinking like, yeah, what does it mean to be someone? And then uh, fast forward a couple of years later, writing this book, I'm like, wait a second. Is there a book called Be Someone Yet? So I do a quick little Google search uh, through the book archives, and I've discovered there's not a single book called Be Someone Yet. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to pivot the main idea of this book to uh, to what it means to be someone, Amazing. which is not uncommon when writing a book. Uh, like if you set a deadline at the beginning and like you start the project with your initial idea, that initial idea will morph and transition into something different nine times out of 10, I would say. And so that was the initial inspiration for the book. So I was like, all right, I have this idea with, uh, I think I can find the, my target audience, my, my, my early adopters rather, mm-hmm. in the Houston, city of Houston, Texas, because they'll recognize the term be something. Right, it's something that's familiar yeah. to yeah. the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so I was like, okay, I have this question. What does it mean to be someone? And in order to make a compelling book, at least in a nonfiction category, you have to figure out how you can use this book to solve a problem. So the question was, how do I turn what does it mean to be someone into a problem, right? And so what I what I found out was, I was watching, uh, do you follow, follow Arnold Schwarzenegger on Instagram? I don't, no. So I do, he's one of my, uh, another one of my inspirations. And he did this address to the class of 2020 and beyond. And what he discovered was, nobody uh, most of the students that were graduating didn't really have a clear idea of who they wanted to be they didn't have a clear vision of who they wanted to be and couple that with a statistic of 70% of people in the workforce today aren't satisfied with their work and are actively looking to make a switch if another opportunity comes along that's even like a little bit better even or even just different mm-hmm. they'll just jump all over it right so the problem became from what does it mean to be someone turned into 70% of people in the workforce or just aren't happy with their work, which is a pretty big statistic that they're not happy with their work. And so that was the problem. And that was the main thesis of the book, understanding how to satisfy the need to be someone by having a clear vision of who you want to be, rather operationalizing that vision to figure out who you want to be so you can use that to make an impact in your community, 
whether you be a business leader, uh, part of a big social movement, uh, and beyond. And that's kind oh, of that's, what's that's really interesting, and I, I I think it's extremely important to point out that you know while humans have the desire to be someone or to you know achieve something basically it's kind of like a hierarchy thing they want to continue climbing up on the hierarchy and um the path may not be clear the way that they do it may not be clear and so that's why you have um people jumping on every opportunity that they see because that's what they equate to the progression so i really admire what you've created and what you um i'm i'm not sure if the book is out yet but what you're creating um it's really important to put an emphasis on identifying what it means to be someone and how you curate that path. So I'm curious to hear uh, your sort of understanding of that process. Absolutely. So what I've discovered, like a common pattern, I've interviewed, uh, I've interviewed and researched several people like uh, the, uh, one of the CEOs of Mattress Firm. Uh, I've interviewed the founder of DocuSign. I've interviewed people that are involved with uh, the social justice movements that have been uh, going on throughout the world within like Black Lives Matter and all these other uh, economically, politically, and socially changing movements mm-hmm. in the world. And with the common uh, vision or common pattern that I saw was it all started off with like a need. They had all, they had this, this restless need to be somewhere. They had this thing, they, they needed this, there was this nagging feeling that they needed to do something else or do something different or build something or be a person or align with a mission or vision. Secondly, there was a, I always say that there's an epiphany and they're like that, there's that defining moment. Uh, but in reality, Mark Randolph, who was the founder of uh, Netflix, as well as the author of a book that will never work. He says, defining moments are, they're fun to look at and they're really exciting to look at, especially in Silicon Valley and uh, origin stories. But the reality is it's all like, all an evolving, it's an evolving thing. Like he said that when he got a late fee or when his partner, Reed Hastings, got a late fee, uh, a $40 on a return video to Blockbuster. He's like, you know what? We can do this better. But really, there's like a lot more that went into it. Um, and each part of that story has that defining moment. So I would say that defining moment is key to setting you uh, on a uh, on a journey to- Core moments. It could be multiple too, right? Yeah, yeah. There, multiple uh, moments as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Building a, a vision for yourself or for a company is ra- rarely binary. There's barely, rarely one defining moment. Um, like in the case of uh, Howard Schultz in building Starbucks, he identified uh, he had this need to be someone or this need to do something more. He was having he had a good job uh, working in Hannerplast. He was making good money, but he wanted to call something his own. And then he discovered a company that was selling Tupperware or coffee supplies. It was doing a large amount of sales and then buying a lot of uh, product from his, uh, the original company he was working at. So he did some investigation. He had one sip of a dark roast coffee, which in the eighties at the time, coffee shops were more are more diners. The modern day coffee shop where you like go down read a book and have a cup of coffee was really pioneered by Starbucks. Right, and so his inspiration mixed with the opportunity of uh, oh, so after uh, he he left his company, eventually convinced the uh, owners of Starbucks to let him on board. They sent him onto a uh, 
a conference call or conference journey or in Italy, which is like mm-hmm. the home of the modern day espresso or cafe, uh, cafe culture. Right. And then he noticed that on every block in Milan, there was an espresso bar. And each of all these baristas have a really good relationship with the customers. They're always bustling with customers. And so he identified this, op- he had this inspiration of, of Starbucks coffee. And then he op- identified this opportunity. He's like, why isn't there ca- espresso bars in the United States? And he had this really good idea. This could be something huge. This could change the way uh, cafe culture can bring people together. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this could be a great way for people to exchange ideas through coffee, through meeting and all, all this other stuff. So he took that idea to the original founder of Starbucks, but they just, they were like, no, we're not a, we're not a drink company. We're a cop where we sell coffee things. We don't sell coffee drinks. And then I was like, well, whatever. I'll start my own coffee company called E. Giornali. And it did well. They, they scaled up the five stores in Seattle, the Seattle area. And then they, then, uh, then how I acquired Starbucks. And he took that name and then, you know, the history, you know, the rest, you can walk probably, you can drive probably less than five minutes from where you are right now and get yourself a cup of a Starbucks coffee or a, uh, what is it called? The pumpkin spice frappuccino thing that's mm-hmm. on everyone's minds now when October hits, right? That's a beautiful story. And, you know, there there's some key, key points in that as well, where the original sort of founders didn't have that vision that mm-hmm. Howard had. Um, you know, sometimes or not sometimes, I think oftentimes it's, it's, it's fun to, to dive into the elements and really understand why the person was thinking the way they were. Uh, that's kind of what I do when I have podcasts with successful people. I try to understand, you know, why they were thinking a certain way and what sort of, uh, what kind of an ecosystem that they have to create to come to that understanding or to perceive things in, su- in such a manner. And based on your research and interviews, um, you know, if you could talk about some of the elements that you've seen, some of the recurring themes that you've seen within successful people that have become someone. Yeah, so I would say when I talked, one of the probably the most uh, influential interviews that I had was with the mattress from CEO, or former mattress from CEO, rather, Steve Zagner. Uh, and I think this interview was a lot better than I had with the DocuSign founder because when I, because uh, I was relatively new to actually conducting interviews, like a journalistic interview to like understand mm-hmm. people to figure out questions and stories. Uh, I'm sure you, like when you did your first couple of podcasts, you're like, oh man, I could ask a better question here. I could have got more information there. I could have asked I feel that. I feel that every day. Yeah. <laughs> and like, so I just had my first interview with uh, Tom back in April. And I was like super nervous because I was like, oh man, this is the founder of my company I'm working at. But by the time I got to uh, Steve in August, I was a little bit more relaxed and I had a better way to ask some questions. But basically with Steve, the he wanted to, he knew he wanted to be a CEO. He knew he wanted to be a leader coming out of college. And when he identified that opportunity for mattresses, the, the passion wasn't about selling white rectangles to people. The passion came from identifying an opportunity, which was there's no national uh, chain of mattress firm or mattress stores. And the right. question was why, why, why isn't there a national chain? Okay. Mm-hmm. Because uh, no one's done before. Why is that? Well, because they didn't understand how to scale. mostly owned by mom and pop shops. Well, why was that? Because no one really saw, I didn't find the opportunity of an, a simple uh, retail outlet, low overhead, being able to move salespeople around and stuff like that. 
And so the passion that he had that operationalized his vision was uh, this was an opportunity to uh, to jump on. This is a way to grow and build a team quickly and scale. He moved uh, Mattress Firm when he jumped on board to CEO from 300 million revenue to 1.5 billion revenue over the course of, uh, don't have a, the exact, over like the course of a couple of years, which I think is pretty impressive. No, that definitely is impressive. Yeah. So, so having a vision, but, um, also understanding that, you know, not everyone sees the same opportunity or not everyone sees opportunity in the same manner, um, has been a recurring theme, like you mentioned. Yeah. I'm curious to hear the sort of progression that you've noticed within uh, certain leaders, entrepreneurs, people, you know, the adaptability, like how important has it been to adapt to what is happening while maintaining your core philosophy and your core vision? Good question. Have you ever read The Lean Startup by Eric Grace? No, I haven't. So it's a really good book, and it takes uh, <clears throat> kind of the if you haven't read uh, the Lean Startup, I highly recommend you do because it's basically the book on modern day entrepreneurship, and it talks about how old school business plans were kind of guided like uh, building a rocket ship. You know, you started on one trajectory, and then you launch it, and you have your one, three, five year plans. What Eric talks about in his book is rather than building a rocket ship, it's more like driving a car. So you have your initial concept, you launch your initial concept, but rather than going on the same trajectory, you have to learn as quickly as possible uh, from your customers, from your beta, from your beta customers, from your initial customers. And once you figure out what sticks with them, you steer towards the direction of what is that stickiness factor. What do your customers resonate with it and what do they not? Uh, I'm going to go back to the um, the Starbucks example I used when. Uh, when Howard first started uh, E. Giordani, he replicated the exact uh, Italian cafe experience uh, where they had the Italian opera music in the background. Everyone was wearing uh, like button up tuxedos and uh, they had porcelain cups. Right. Tiny little so, porcelain yeah, cups. Sorry. Sorry. Um, I didn't mean to interject like that, but he essentially identified what was working in a different part of the world and tried mm-hmm. to replicate that. Yeah, I think I think this is a very important point in terms of, um, you know, when when young entrepreneurs especially start something, they get married to the idea of doing things one way. And I've mm-hmm. certainly been in that in that uh, boat where, you know, you get married to the idea and your ego is kind of attached to doing things one way, but you don't realize the macro picture that. You know, sometimes you have to abandon the the initial idea altogether and do exactly what, you know, brings in revenue depending on uh, what the goal is of the company. But it's a super important point and I think you uh, can continue down, you know, the path of explaining why it's important. Yeah, absolutely. And the point I was getting to that with like adapting to the people is uh, what, what Howard learned from uh, his first experiment with Ejernali was the customers didn't really care, the American customers at least, didn't care too much for the Italian music. They didn't care for the porcelain mugs. They wanted to take their coffee on the go. 
they wanted uh, something that was more suitable to their palate. They wanted somewhere to sit because these original restaurants or these original cafe bars didn't even have chairs. They're all stand up. And so he pivoted his main, the original concept, which was to mimic exactly the Italian espresso bar towards something more suitable to the American palate, which, uh, which uh, to reference uh, to somebody else, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the former late night talk show host, David Letterman. So Dave, David Letterman used to say he was the imperfect version of Johnny Carson, who was the person before him that was hosting the late night show. And he tried so hard to be Johnny Carson, but you can never fully mimic that um, that one person. Right. He was just the imperfect version. But that imperfect version made him who he was. Right? And that imperfect version of E. Giornale, which is a modern-day Starbucks, uh, would actually was actually more perfect for the American audience, for the American the American culture. If that makes sense. I think how things play out like that. Yeah. Uh, funny, it also man. could somewhat highlight that whatever you're expected whatever the expected understanding of perfection is or mm-hmm. whatever you anticipate to be the perfect way the perfect thing um, is kind of your perspective and it, it comes from you and it has um, somewhat of a bias right so it I feel like it's important to objectively view things and curate something that maybe has elements of yourself but not you know, is mm. not what's the word? It's not created in your image, if that if that's the correct phrase or something like that. Yeah, you don't want to be an exact doppelganger mm. of someone else, but those little pieces of inspiration that you try to mimic, you do in your own imperfect way, creates your own unique value proposition. Not to say that you should always copy and like always, because you always want to have like a unique spin. Because if you're just like a copycat of someone else. Um, I think people see through that. At least the genuine people see through that. And uh, you're not going to build followers. You're not going to build a brand that way. 100%. And mm-hmm. that's, um, that's something I've kind of had to embrace. Uh, um, yeah. I had to understand that. You know, I, 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 when I first started this, I would spend time trying to figure out, you know, what the best way to do things is. You know, how do I, who do I want to model myself after? Who yeah. do I want to replicate? And then I realized that, you know, whatever it is about myself that I don't think um, that I essentially want to hide or suppress, um, that could be the thing that makes people gravitate towards me and my content. And, um, you know, there's something freeing about that as well, because you're not you're not attaching your worth to the elements that other people have spent years developing, because it's really easy to mimic someone's behavior and to the unknown person to the person that may not have seen that person that you're mimicking it seems you know i feel like that behavior is at level five and you're taking that level five behavior whether it's watered down or you know depending on how good you are at it and you're showing it to someone to impress them or to increase your own value to the unknown person they don't have any reference so you're cheating yourself you're lying to yourself and that kind of ties into the whole fake entrepreneurs, fake influencer culture that we, we find ourselves in today. But you yeah, know, that might be a little tangent. Yeah, no, no, like I'll talk about that. The fake influencer culture, that's kind of funny. Funny. Like what I've noticed in the, the LinkedIn ether, 
is we're moving towards like satirical posts gaining traction because those generic self-help posts are getting reposted so often. Like I saw this post the other day, like saying I was walking past a dog. It was starving. I fed the, I was walking, I was walking past this dog on on the way, the way to an interview. Mm -hmm. And I fed the dog. It was starving. I walk into the interview. The interview was the dog. And like all these, all these funny stories are like starting to pop up. But that's the way the, the culture develops, you know. Especially you've seen that with meme internet memes. Like we start off with everything being so serious, but then like once the ether of the internet gets a hold of it, it makes it like satirical, and funny in a way. Right. Even though it's like very uh, humorous and people are trying to get a laugh out of it, it's like probably the most way to humanize an experience. You know? In what way? Or how so? Like. Have you seen the the new South Park special? Um, I saw one clip of it on Twitter that was kind of going around. Yeah, you should def uh, you should definitely check it out. But basically, there's so much seriousness in the world right now uh, with all these topics going on, whether it be the pandemic, the social movements, the rioting, the protesting, the wildfires. So much stuff going on, uh, and like it feels like you have to be walking on eggshells all the time, especially when like discussing anything on the on social media. And if you're not a part of this uh, larger hive mind that has this one single story thought process on it, you'll get ousted, right? Like you'll be called out, you'll be like, oh no, he's, he's not thinking the way we're thinking. He's the bad guy. We gotta do something about it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That, that was a tangent. You were right. That was a tangent. Uh, no, we're, we're, we're good, though. I mean, I definitely understand what you're saying. And, um, you know, people have echo thoughts that I, I just did a podcast before this and I kind of talked about the same notion where, you know, just because uh, just because there's a group of people that likes and engages with something that does not make that thing OK or that does not make that thing correct or even acceptable. And that's kind of a, the misconception that we have where, you know, a lot of the a lot of the virtual validation is mm. dependent on likes, comments, engagement. And yeah. you have a lot of like minded people. I mean, this is uh, in particular what we talked about was failure, where, you know, uh, just a conversation about glorifying failure. And yeah. the person that I was talking to made a very good point. They said, you know, you shouldn't glorify failure if you don't have anything to show for it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I said, I agree because people will post about failure just like they'll post about these other things virtue signaling whatever it may be they'll post about those things just to get likes from people because they value that dopamine hit more than they value actually doing something actually being a part of something and some people take it as far as to be part of things to to have that virtuous sort of stance where maybe they're lacking in different aspects of their life and that sort of virtual outlet that virtuous outlet makes them feel important, which is, you know, if we want to look at the byproduct of that essentially is positive, maybe the, you know, the intention might not be in the right place, but. No, absolutely. And if we're talking a little bit about failure, there's definitely like, uh, tech companies in particular, they really have a culture based around failure. Now that might sound a little weird, right? But basically the, th the fact of failing is if you're failing, that means you're at least doing something, right? And the concept of failing, which might go over some people's heads, is the reason why you want to fail is so that there's some valuable learning to take away from it. So you can take that learning, 
added into your product development process and steer to like going back to the lean startup methodology, steering towards what will get you to success. Um, but uh, the thing about failure is we've, there's nothing to show from it initially, right? Especially if it's a company that fails. If your company fails and you let down all your investors, you let down all your stakeholders, uh, you let down all the people that work there, you're like, we failed and you're all out of job and you lost all your money. We'll get them next time. We learned some great things and when we, we uh, <laughs> build another company, um, we'll, we'll try it again next time. But there's like no tangible takeaway from that. Like, I'm not going to give you another $150,000 seed fund. You, you, you screwed the pooch. You got to find someone else or find another way to prove yourself. Mm-hmm. So failing in a big way like that, rather than failing in a little ways to learn, despite like, um, despite failing in a big way being, uh, there's a learning takeaway piece from it. There's no, uh, there's no tangible to reinvest with. If that makes sense. No, a hundred percent makes sense. And, I personally believe you could put a stop loss on failure. You could really kind of detect failure and mm-hmm. it's important to fail, fail small. And that's why it's important to start early because when you start early, the earlier you start rather, the consequences of failure are kind of lower. So, you know, if the person that has the startup and did a round of funding or whatever, and they fail, the consequence, and that's the first time they fail rather, that's those consequences are severe. So it's important to kind of fail in a way um, or fail early. And that requires a person to try different things early. That's the kind of flip side of it, where the more you do, the more the more um, the probability of failure is higher, depending on how sort of uh, how far far out you go from your comfort zone and skill set. Yeah. And and one more thing about failure, then we can move on. Uh, one of the ways that DocuSign became the successful company that it is today, uh, before it was founded, the founder, uh, Tom Gonzer, uh, he worked on many different ventures. Uh, some of them failed, some of them not. But there's this one company that, uh, so back in the 90s, when the internet was like really exploding and everyone didn't want to get on board with it, uh, the internet, if websites in particular, were seen just as marketing applications. You know, they would say, oh, get a website and you can promote your website on this on. You can promote your business on this website, on your website. When uh, applications came around, uh, Tom had his wife in the mortgage business. And she, he would notice that she would be on the phone, printing and faxing and sending stuff back and forth all the time. And he thought, what if there was a way to take a process like mortgage and put it online would that make things easier for people would people want that and the conversation we had with customers uh, initially made it seem that was right and so long story short he he started this company that went up to 100 million in uh, in valuation and uh, he was about to get the company acquired by uh, what's it called Freddie Mac Fannie Mac Fannie Mae Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac one of those big mortgage origination companies or mortgage companies. Uh, and it was going to be like a hundred million dollar uh, acquisition in less than two years. Super easy. Wow. No matter, but this was in the nineties era, right? And by around, two, around the year, uh, around 2000, when that came around, the bubble burst. 
the dot-com boom just fell apart, you know? And so that $100 million acquisition just fell to the floor. So even though he did every single thing right, the deal still fell apart. So, but at that point, the valuable learning that he took away from it was, okay, I feel some here, here. I was really successful in this venture. What I discovered about myself is I really like to bring things to life. And that's what I'm really, bringing ideas to life is something that I'm really good at. And then he's like, what? Then he had another idea. He's a big idea kind of guy. And he's like, man, in the next 25 to 30 years, there's no way to, we're going to be signing agreements via snail mail. If there's someone who has to sign a paper in Hong Kong to the U.S., we're not going to rely on inefficient processes and wait days and days and weeks to get this agreement signed. There's got to be a better way. And so that initial concept is how the DocuSign Z signature was founded. That's amazing. To learn. Yeah, it's always it's always fascinating to look into stories and journeys of people that have contributed to humanity in a way that um, you know not only rewards them but also makes life easy for other people. And we yeah. see we see kind of a scaled down version of this in today's world where you know everybody and anybody has an online course and they have you have so many micro influencers whatever you want to call them that are disguising their product with a cloak of um, helping other people. But essentially what they're doing is capitalizing on the insecurities of people. And that's why you have a lot of these uh, self-help courses. And, you know, I'm not knocking anybody's, anybody's grind or anybody's pursuit of whatever they want to do, but it's important to somehow make that distinction before you dive into an ideology that is not cre- that that wasn't created to have your best interest in mind. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Uh, something I do want to mention is uh, my book. The book Beast One is not just for uh, business leaders. It's not just for uh, people that are looking to use vision to build and grow a team. It's also a concept that I want to apply to the individual. Like when I. Graduated from U of H in 2018, summer of 2018. I got rejected from damn near every company in Houston and Austin. And I was like, man, I got to rethink my interview strategy or figure out what I'm doing wrong. Because I think I have some value to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And eventually I did get an offer with a company on the with DocuSign. And I was like, oh man, they, they, I don't know if I can do this. Like, because it was in Seattle, Washington, which I knew nobody, I didn't know anybody in Seattle. Right. I didn't have any, I was essentially 4,000 in debt because as soon as I got my offer, I was like, oh, dang, I should probably pay them off my tuition so I can show them I have my degree. Because mm-hmm. uh, I come from a, uh, a middle working class family, like many uh, University of Houston students do. And I didn't have, a, they, uh, I didn't have the, the funds to pay for a fancy hotel when uh, I moved to Seattle. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. But this the smallest piece of vision that I had for myself that I used to guide my life is will there be growth? If I make this decision, will there be growth? So I always seek out the challenge. Challenge, society grows when we challenge ourselves. We stagnate when we do not. 
And so I didn't have much money. I only had three weeks to relocate. And I thought, let's see if I can do this. So every hotel I found in Seattle was like a hundred bucks a day or more. And I was like, I can't afford that. That's not in my budget. But there's this, have you ever stayed in a hostel before? Yes. Yeah, so uh, definitely an interesting experience. Yeah, in the U.S. or in like another country? Uh, in other countries, not in the U.S. Yeah. yeah, very common to stay in a hostel in like Europe or Southeast Asia or some some cool, some cool fun place like that. It's a little bit of a different story in the United States. I've come to to realize. I stayed at this. Uh, I could so not no hotel I could afford, but in the heart of downtown Seattle, right next to the Pike Place Market. There's, there's this hostel called the Green Tortoise Hostel. It was only 35 bucks a night. I was like, you know what? I can make that work. I can make that work. It was only a 10 minute walk from work from the downtown Seattle office or the downtown DocuSign office. Mm-hmm. And I, so I was like, all right, there's this is going to be my first two week place. So I'm going to book it here. And uh, hopefully within the two weeks that I'm here, when I start work, I can find a, I can find a place to live, like a full time place to live. And then the first night, I was staying there. I was uh, just got done with work. I was exhausted, and I went back to the Green Tortoise Hostel. Uh, and I was trying to sleep that night. Unfortunately, it wasn't the stress that was keeping me up. It wasn't uh, the ambiguity of the decision that I just made. There was some guy like sleeping in the bunk above me. I think he had sleep apnea or something because he was just snoring. Like Seattle's where or the Seattle area's where Boeing's uh, stationed, and I thought. Man, is there like a is, is are we over like a, a runway or something? But no, his snoring was keeping me up. So I was awake all night, just thinking like, oh man, what decision did I just make? Why did I move here? What was I thinking? I don't know. Anybody here? The city's too expensive. People here are just generally mean. And all these negative thoughts were whirling in my head. And I was like, oh, right. should I stay here. I don't have a lease here. I could just cancel my lease, or I, I could just go back home and keep searching for a job in Houston. And then I thought. All right, let's think about this. If I were to do that, I would probably regret the giving, giving up so early. So I went back to my main mantra, which is like the seed of my vision. If I pursue this opportunity, will it stimulate growth? So all the factors that I went in, uh, new city, first job, didn't know anybody, low on funds. If I stay here, I will absolutely, this is a big challenge for me personally. I'll definitely grow. And so I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll stick it out. And so two years later, I got promoted once. Got a full-time job. I'm renting a room in a, a, a house that's pretty old. Like it was built in like the 20s. But it's nice enough. And I pay, it's funny enough. I pay actually less rent here than I ever did in Houston because I rent a room rather than rent my own apartment. That's crazy. Yeah. And I don't even want to talk about Houston uh Houston's rent and everything like that is uh, definitely ridiculous, but I appreciate your time. Um, Interesting conversation. I will be checking out your book. I'm not sure if it's out yet or not. I can figure that out rather. Can I plug that out? Plug that real quick? Absolutely, man. Yeah. So the Be Someone book will be released on December 7th, 2020. You can either check me out on LinkedIn, Adam Arafat, or go to adamarafat.com. You can sign up for the newsletter today be notified when it drops or just check adamarifat.com back in december i'll have a link to the amazon purchase page there